The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. How's the sound? Can you hear? Okay. There's hearing assisted devices for anybody around the corner there as well. Welcome. really nice to sit up here and appreciate everybody coming into the Sangha to practice. It's really, really a nice feeling. Um, it's kind of a rare opportunity for me to sit up here and uh, share the Dharma. So I have a few things I wanted to kind of offer. Um, Over the last several years, probably about four or five years, I've been really following a couple of monastics that were students of Ajahn Chah and really um, appreciate what they have to offer. It's been helpful to me, along with Gil and Andrea. And so I'm going to just share some of my reflections from what I've gleaned from that. And... uh, I learned a lot from listening to some of what they said. A number of the things got fleshed out for me that I've sort of been nodding at for a long time as a a Buddhist practitioner that were quite helpful. So hopefully this will be helpful. Um, When Andrea asked me if I'd sit in this morning, I right away I thought, oh, I I have something I want to talk about. Eight Worldly Dharmas or Eight Worldly Winds, which is a, a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, which is one of the Pali canons, kind of these big, thick books. <laughs> um, they do fit on Kindles, though, which is kind of nice for traveling. Um, so I thought I'd just read, it's a very short translation from Tanisaro Biko, Biku. Um, a little bit. It's called the Loka Vipati Sutta, and he translates that as the failings of the world. <laughs> um, so it's, qu- it's pretty quick. Monks, these eight worldly conditions spin after the world, and the world spins after these eight worldly conditions. Which eight? Gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, and pain. These are the eight worldly conditions that spin after the world, and the world spins after these eight worldly conditions. For an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, there arise gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, and pain. For a well-instructed, disciple of the noble ones, there also arise gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, and pain. So what difference, what distinction, what distinguishing factor is there between the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones and the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person? Not my translation. (laughs) 
For us, Lord, the teachings have the Blessed One as their root, their guide, and their arbiter. It would be good if the Blessed One himself would explicate the meaning of the statement. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty clever response, actually. Uh, having heard it from the Blessed One, the monks will remember it. In that case, monks, listen and pay close attention, and I will speak. As you say, Lord, the monks responded. The Blessed One said, Gain arises for an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person. He does not reflect, Gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He does not discern it as it actually is. Loss arises, status arises, disgrace arises, censure arises, praise arises, pleasure arises, pain arises. He does not reflect, pain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He does not discern it as it actually is. His mind remains consumed with the gain. His mind remains consumed with the loss, with the status, the disgrace, the censure, the praise, the pleasure, his mind remains consumed with pain. He welcomes the arisen gain and rebels against the arising loss. He welcomes the arisen status and rebels against the arisen, rising disgrace. He welcomes the arising praise and rebels against the arising censure. He welcomes the arisen pleasure and rebels against the arisen pain. As he, thus, as he is thus engaged in welcoming and rebelling, he is not released from birth, aging, or death, from sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, or despairs. He is not released, I tell you, from suffering and stress. Now, gain arises for a well-instructed disciple of the Noble Ones. He reflects, gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He discerns it, as it actually is. Loss arises, status arises, disgrace arises, censure arises, praise arises, pleasure arises, pain arises. He reflects, pain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. He discerns it as it actually is. His mind does not remain consumed with the gain. His mind does not remain consumed with the loss with the status, the disgrace, the censure, the praise, the pleasure. His mind does not remain consumed with the pain. He does not welcome the arisen gain or rebel against the arisen loss. He does not welcome the arisen, arisen status or rebel against the arisen disgrace. He does not welcome the arisen praise or rebel against the arisen censure. He does not welcome the arisen pleasure or rebel against the arisen pain. As he thus abandons welcoming and rebelling, he is released from birth, aging, and death, from sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despairs. He is released, I tell you, from suffering and stress. This is the difference. This is the distinction. This is the distinguishing factor between the well-instructed disciple and the no of the noble ones and the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person. Gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure, pain. These conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Knowing this, the wise person, mindful, ponders these changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind. 
undesirable ones bring no resistance. His welcoming and rebelling are scattered. Gone to their end, do not exist. Knowing the dustless, sorrowless state he discerns rightly has gone beyond, beyond becoming to the future, further shore. So, praise, blame, gain, loss, pleasure, pain, fame, and disrepute. I heard a, a teaching from Ajahn Chah where he, he just said very simply, the eight worldly dharmas equal value. I thought, well, hmm, what's that mean? And I've thought about it a little bit, like, like, pray, Pleasure, equal value sign, pain. <laughs> you know, that's one way of kind of computing it mathematically. <laughs> they kind of cancel each other out in a way, right? So, for me, when I first started practicing, I was constantly trying to distill the teaching of whatever I was studying, either in the suttas, or a Dharma talk from a teacher, I was always relating it to the Buddha's first Dharma talk, the Sutta, which was the Four Noble Truths. How does the eight worldly dharmas relate to the Four Noble Truths? Because from my experience, I think it really gets, I'm always looking to try and simplify whatever the teaching is. And in some ways, even the Four Noble Truths is a sort of an, an embellishment. I'm sure the Buddha had to embellish a little bit to get his point across. I think he's, for 45 years, I think he was basically teaching the same thing. He says, I teach two things, suffering and the end of suffering. <laughs> you know, can't get too much more simple than that. Suffering, I think we all kind of get, you know, okay, suffering, hmm. But he still teaches what it is. I mean, the explanation to get to the path of freedom from suffering, we have to really get what is suffering, right? So <clears throat> I thought I would pass on some things that I've learned about the Four Noble Truths, little aspects of it, that little nuances about it that I, I don't think are that common. I don't think people get exposed to this process. And um, this was a teaching that I, I learned from uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who was a, a student and a, under the guidance of Ajahn Chah for a number of years in uh, Thailand as a monk. So some of you, or probably all of you, know, heard what the Four Noble Truths are, right? So I'm going to f f kind of express them in a way that I was, I was taught, that I learned. And it has to do with there are <clears throat> three aspects to each noble truth. Okay, so the first aspect is what's called the statement. There is dukkha. Okay? I got it. There is dukkha. So, 
The second aspect is what to do about it. The practice. Okay, there's dukkha, now what? Right? So, dukkha is to be understood. That's the second aspect. That's what you do about it. And if we think about that for a minute, how do we understand something? You know, the lang- we can sort of stand under it, you know, and bear, maybe bear it. See if we can bear with it. And get to know it. If we get to know the dukkha, instead of like the run-of-the-mill uninstructed folks that tend to try to run away from, let's say, what we consider suffering. Dukkha is translated mostly as unsatisfactoriness or suffering or stress. So, we need to, with our practice, begin to get to know what that experience of dukkha is. Right? And if we're able to do that, that then the, there's an understanding that comes to an opening to it, sort of a, the experience, allowing it to be there, whatever it is. In the eight worldly dharmas, it could be mostly it's pain that we don't want. So we, we need to be able to sit with that let's say, get to know what is this. And often if you've been instructed in meditation in this tradition, people will say, well, you know, explore it, investigate it. What is that sensation, let's say, in the body that we're describing as pain? Yeah? And if we do that, sometimes we actually see things or experience things like, oh, wow, it's arising and passing away. It's tingling now. Now it's itching. Now it's burning. Now it's whatever. But we have to stay with it. You know, we have to be willing to meet it, to to kind of bear with it, to understand it. So, there is dukkha. Dukkha is to be understood. And the third aspect is the insight. Oh, dukkha's been understood. Yeah? The wisdom that can develop from meeting dukkha and understanding it. So, the second noble truth is about the cause, the proximate cause of dukkha. So, in the tradition, the Buddha taught that tanha is a Pali word that means thirst. It's often translated as craving or desire. Yeah. And it can be really small, not very intense. It can be incredibly intense. The loss of a loved one or, you know, badly, you know, you have a tragic accident and you're paralyzed. Who knows, you know. Or just the normal irritation of being in the sense realm. (laughs) Being alive, you know, can often be pretty irritating. You know, it's rarely we find ourselves, oh, this is just right. (laughs) We're often going, oh, I kind of like a little more of this or a little less of this, you know. So, 
So the statement is the cause of suffering is craving or tanha. So the practice, okay, so what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, the practice is craving is to be abandoned, to be let go of. And back to Ajahn Chah, who is really the quint quintessential brevity is the soul of wit, one of Shakespeare's <laughs> great statements. You know, Ajahn Chah was the embodiment of that. And he once t said, okay, if you want a little peace, let go a little. If you want a lot of peace, let go a lot. If you want complete peace, let go completely. You probably have all heard that. It's one of my favorites. So, how do we let go? Again, if we don't understand what the issue is, there is dukkha. If we don't experience, let ourselves experience the dukkha, the suffering, we can't let go of it because we don't even know what it is to let go of. So it goes back, right? There. So, and the insight is once we've let go of the desire or the craving, there's a sense of freedom, a sense of release, which kind of segues very gently into the third noble truth, which uh, is often, um, I, I basically describe it as freedom as possible. There is the possibility of being free of dukkha. Naroda is the term that's used in Pali, which means cessation the ceasing of this dukkha. And so there is, cessation is possible. And how do we practice with it? What's to be done? Well, it ties back into the first and second noble truths. There is dukkha. Dukkha is to be understood. As we understand dukkha, we can let go of it, abandon, and be released. And then the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path, the way to the end of suffering, the path to the way to the end of suffering. Sort of a little guidebook. And I probably have them all memorized well enough. <laughs> if I don't, my friend Diane will correct me. Uh, you know, it's often spoken as right understanding and right intention. And I like to use the word wise in, in place of that. Wise understanding, wise intention. Because right can sometimes balance out wrong. And it, it's not about judgment it's about un, you know wise understanding wisdom and that particular here's what's kind of for my view this is what supports my view about the four noble truth truth being kind of the key to the buddha's understanding teachings is that it 
in the very first eightfold path, it's wise understanding is understanding the four noble truths. It's built in to the, to the matrix, you know, here, the very first thing. So, hmm, there's, there's a strong propensity here to really, what is that? What is that teaching? What's that prescription to freedom? And so then, uh, second noble, or the second eightfold path is uh, what's called wise intention. You know, and that's kind of actually a nice collection of things. Uh, uh, kindness, loving kindness, um, ahimsa, you know, non-harming. And I can't remember the third one, but... Renunciation. Renunciation, letting go. So having those intentions is a pretty sweet support. And uh, then the third noble, or the Eightfold Path, the third step on the Eightfold Path is, um, has to do with speech, which is kind of interesting. It has to do with... uh, how we speak to each other. It's a very powerful practice. Or and maybe it's, rise, rise, it's, it's wise attitude, it's wise action, which I think has to do with, um, maybe I have it backwards, but in any way. So, this, hmm? Very good. And then samadhi? Beautiful, yeah. Yeah, use the mic. So anyway, what, what I was going to do now is say, you know, if this is all too much, trusting awareness works just as well as the fourth noble truth. <laughs> and it kind of simplifies it <laughs> on some level. But, um, yeah, so, so action, and, and so the way it's kind of broken down, the first two steps are, have to do with panya, or wisdom, and then the, the next three steps have to do with sila, you know, right action, right attitude, right speech, right livelihood. And then the last group, effort, mindfulness and samadhi or concentration or unification of mind is wisdom, or not wisdom, but um, samadhi, you know, practice, what we do often on the cushion, and hopefully throughout the day. So, I think one of the things that is important in this process, especially with the eight worldly dharmas, is first to recognize when one is caught in the breeze. Okay, oh, I'm feeling a need for praise. <laughs> you know, it's like. Uh, you, most of you are, are, know that Andrea teaches daily life practice. And, you know, I often say, and it's often said, mindfulness isn't that difficult. Once we're mindful, you know, how, 
you know, remembering you're brushing your teeth. Okay, hey, I'm brushing my teeth. It's remembering to brush, to be mindful to be brush your teeth, right? And, you know, if, we, if you've done any of these daily life practice exercises, given yourself a, a skill to try and remember going through a doorway, you'd be 100 feet past it and go, oh, I just walked through a doorway, or, you know, light goes on, like, you know, all these things. It's very challenging to be aware in the present moment of what we're doing. So, um, so the first thing is to recognize. So it goes back really to understanding dukkha, remembering, going back to, oh, recognizing there's some suffering here. And one thing I tend to say a lot to myself, a little cue, is where's the clinging If I'm suffering right now in some way, feeling anxious or worried or ground up about something, I can go, oh, where's the clinging? There's, you know, if if there's dukkha, there's clinging. No question about it. So if if I go, oh, I'm worried about my talk. I'm nervous about this talk I'm about to give or whatever. I can go, oh, there's the clinging. I want praise. I don't want blame. You know, I want whatever. And I can just sort of... Whoosh, I go, oh, that's, that's it. I can be with that. Let's be with that. Let's just sit with that. What's that like? What's that about? So... Oh, and, and as an aside, this is the first talk I've given in the last three where I actually remember to bring my notes. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a good thing, actually. <laughs> but I had some help with this talk. Yeah, it's, it's good to remember, I think, too, that it's about... If we, if we continually come back to understanding instead of perfection, which I think in our culture we have a tendency to try and be perfect, try to get, you know, get it right, try to not get blame. Not, you know, we're driven by these winds, right? And we're like, oh, trying to be perfect. And it's just not possible. <laughs> in fact, the Buddha, I think, said, I don't know the exact quote, but he says, there isn't a single human being on earth that hasn't suffered from blame, that hasn't been blamed. Yeah? So it's not possible. <laughs> yeah. Relax. Just let it go. <laughs> it's not possible. There's something else I wanted to bring into um, this chat a little bit, and I do want to give some time, because I know this is a discussion group usually, and I'd really like to hear from you guys about your practices and what's going on. There's a few statements that the Buddha made that I've found very interesting and helpful to reflect on. One of them is, there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And he states it as a fact. It's not like a theory. Right? So, if that's 
a fact, then the born, the created, the formed, and the conditioned, there may be a path to the freedom of that. So I'm proposing that the Four Noble Truths is a prescription to seeing that, having that experience, right? And it's through recognizing. I think we don't recognize the, the unborn, uncreated, unformed, and unconditioned too often because we're in the swirls of the eight worldly <laughs> worldly winds and worldly dharmas, the way it is. There's an expression that uh, Ajahn Sumedho uses quite a bit, and I like it a lot. I've used it myself quite a bit in my practice. It's like this, or the way it is. And so it works a lot with, for me, if I'm experiencing dukkha, if I'm experiencing stress, if I'm experiencing clinging, I just sort of get comfortable with that and go, it's like this, and allow the experience to be there. And I find it helpful. I think it, it can be um, skillful means for being in the world with what's actually arising for us. It's like the difference between trying to rearrange the conditions all your life, you know, like rearranging the furniture <laughs> until you die, <laughs> you know. It's like, okay, just keep trying to make it better, <laughs> you know. I'm going to keep fixing this situation, you know, instead of, oh, well, it's like this, you know. What's my relationship to that, you know, so... So in the sutta, the, the, the Buddha said, you know, inconstant, changing, you know, this sort of this, you, you've heard all of this many times, you know, the impermanent nature of things. Things arising and passing away, things arising and ceasing. And how do we relate to that is a good question, you know. And it goes back to where's the clinging So escape from the born, created, formed, condition essentially is attentive awareness. You know, that's why I say like if the eightfold path starts to get a little too cumbersome, you know, just, oh, awareness. Trusting in awareness. It's like this. Yeah, the other one little thing that I, I wanted to just augment or add to the third noble truth 
is Naroda or release sensation is to be realized to actually know reality you know what is we use that term a lot to realize something but it's really related to reality and what is reality you know from our teachings and from what the Buddha suggests it is being present in the present moment with what it, what the way it is and I wanted to just end with a teaching a very short teaching um, that the Buddha gave to a bhikkhu named Bahia and it's one it's a very very it's very touching to me for some reason so I like to share it with people and we'll see how you how it strikes you I would tell the whole story but it's a long relatively long story so I'm just going to this this Bahia goes like 500 miles back in early India which he probably had to jog for days to get there and this guy was he had what's called serious samvega really serious he wanted to awaken and he wanted to meet this person who is told was an awakened being so he chased the Buddha down on his alms round and the Buddha says no man I, I can't talk to you right now I'm out here getting you know no no you have to please I need your teaching you know who knows if we'll even be alive you know by the time your alms are done you know and so he pushed the Buddha three times he asked him three times and he finally said okay okay and here's what he said this is how you should train in the scene let there be just the scene in the herd let there be just the herd in the sensed let there be just the sensed in the cognized let there be just the cognized then there will be no you in terms of that when there is no you in terms of that there is no you there then you will be neither here nor there nor in between this just this is the end of suffering so May you all be free from suffering. May we all be free from suffering. Thank you for your attention and for your practice. So, I'm hoping, you know, that people will share whatever's going on with your practices or have any comments about this morning or what's going on in your lives. We have these mics that are pretty simple to work. You just push the button until the green light comes on and talk into the top like the top of an ice cream cone. And it works pretty good. I know some of you, but I don't know a number of you, so I'd like to hear how your practice is going if you feel like speaking up. Thanks, Diana. Maybe you say your name. Good moment. My name is Diana. I, I guess I, what I wanted to share, which, which, um, perfect, which kind of amazes me. I'm, I'm from San Diego, and I started studying the Dharma a couple years ago. And circumstances have it, um, and my and my heart followed it that I would take up contract work 
here in Redwood City and also in San Francisco and in Santa Cruz. And I find that, you know, my spiritual journey is so rich here, mm. studying at the Zen Center, uh, being in the, uh, uh, the opening of the Insight Center in San Francisco the first weekend that it opened, studying at the Insight Center in Santa Cruz, mm. and now here, which is so rich. So it's, of course, my work has me here, but my, sp my spiritual journey really has me here, that here I am. I mean, San Diego is, has, has some, but nothing like here in the North, in Northern California. The, you know, the opportunities, the sittings, the teachers, they're all here. Um, meeting um, Noel Levine and, uh, and some of the other um, people that I've met the last several months that I've only read about, I'm amazed that I am here, and uh, it's really my spiritual journey that brought me here, and um, mm. I'm very grateful. Well, Thank welcome. You. That's great. Thanks for sharing. Thank you for the talk. My name is John. I know you already. <laughs> um, it was a good talk. Um, I liked the last part of it. It was especially very insightful. Um, this path we're talking about is a, like a, to me, it's like a mosaic. You don't have to start from step one. You can start anywhere in, in the path. As a matter of fact, um, and, and I practice some Zen in Berkeley sometimes. That, you know, a lot of these Zen guys, they just stub their toes and they get enlightened. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just like it could happen anytime. You never know. Thanks, John. Maybe I'll say that um, I really appreciate your kind of like simplifying things, right? So the um, Four Noble Truths are about suffering and not suffering. And the um, Eightfold Path like, well, it's really about just kind of awareness, and then out of awareness will flow all the different uh, path factors. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, you're talking about with the Bahia, and the scene, just this, the scene. So I like that, that, you know, this path, it can be very complicated, and I'm one of those people that digs in, I know all the details about things, but it's really great to also be reminded, it can be very simple. It doesn't have to be so complicated. So thank you for that, Richard. Mm, thank you, Diana. Yeah, I think the, um, I was reflecting on the Buddha and, and all the lists and all the different approaches, you know, the five aggregates and all these aspects that he, he was all really just saying, I teach two things, <laughs> suffering and the end of suffering. So it's really up to you which one you want to pick up, you know, that resonates with you. Like, oh, I really like that eight worldly wind thing. That's pretty cool. 
I see that a lot, you know. It's like, um, I'll give an example. Over the weekend, this last weekend, I went to the graduation party of a grandniece who I hadn't seen since she was three. And her grandmother, who was the wife of my brother, who passed away two weeks before this granddaughter was born. And it's, you know, it's family stuff, it's stressful, there's all these... So during the time my brother was dying from cancer, I came over from Maui and lived for about three months about a mile away. And because I wanted to be near him and I wanted to see if he needed stuff done, he was getting more and more limited in terms of what he could do. And I was, you know, I thought that was praiseworthy, you know, pretty praiseworthy, you know, kind of a good guy coming over. But, you know, I had my own agenda. I wanted to be there for him. And it wasn't met with praiseworthiness from his wife so much. <laughs> They've been married for 40 years, and she didn't really want me stumbling around, you know, and so forth. So it triggered some resistance, which my brother was able to kind of ameliorate, and we came out with a strategy where she worked three days a week, I would come over on the day she was gone, you know, and worked out great, you know. But I was reflecting on it, what, we had this interchange where she, and I think I must have asked her, I stuck my foot, you know, I, I'm the one who created the interchange that happened, and she told me how she felt about me. Now, I, this is a woman who's known me since I was eight years old. And I was around 50 at the time, I think, or I don't know, maybe even a little bit younger, 49. And he said some really hurtful things to me. I mean, it was just so simple. It wasn't anything big and, you know, like the, any big story that we had. She just said, you know, you're just too deep. And you just, you know, I like to skim along the surface and you talk too slow and um, I think you're a phony and, you know, this sort of this stuff kind of coming out. And I'm like, I'm just listening. I'm trying to keep in context that her husband of 40 years is dying upstairs, you know. I'm not having a big, well, you know, because a lot of it was true. <laughs> Certainly the phony part had some, some, some truth to it, you know, to some degree. But I was re realizing it, it, the result of that conversation, I pulled back and I hadn't talked to her since my brother's funeral, which was in 1996, almost 19 years ago, right? That I hadn't actually talked to her or seen her. And it was really about praise and blame. I thought, well, this is, I wanted praise and I got blame and I didn't, and it really goes to right speech, like not being able to hear something. It's not just about saying something that's not harmful. It's being able to hear something unkind directed at you, you know, that might be judging or, you know, blame, whatever. And, uh, you know, so I saw her. I was very anxious about going to this because I was going to have to see her. And I did leave her a long voicemail, like, eight or nine years ago, which she didn't respond to. And I thought, well, that justifies, that must mean I'm justified in my, whatever my hanging on to, my clinging. 
And so I saw her at the table. She got right up. Oh, she had tears in her eyes. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so glad you came. I don't think the kids told her that I was coming, which probably was good, you know. And it was just this really spontaneous. And everything that I was holding, you know, it wasn't like I was not, you know, chewing away on this, but every once in a while it would come up in a sit or something and I'd go, yeah, this is sort of in the way. This is blocking me. There's a lack of freedom, a sense of freedom there. And as soon as I recognized that it was all in my head, like Gillis often talks about all these things that really never happened that we react to in the future. And it, it was pretty amazing, you know. It was just so delightful. And I've actually felt a lot of freedom over the last few days around it, a sense of ease that I haven't felt in a long time around the family. You know, because I felt kind of, you know, like, gee, this is, I've got this great sangha, I've got people that I love, like brother and sister, and then there's this thing there. So I just use that as an example of when I wasn't aware at the time, oh, I was expecting praise and I'm getting bonked on the head with some blame, you know. And if it's equal value, then hey, let me just be with it. It's like this, it feels like this. You know, to develop that skill. I'd say I'm a little more aware of it now, but it's still like the light switch. It's usually like way past turning on or off, you know, that I remember. So I often say the practice is somewhat simple, but certainly not easy. So may we all have compassion for ourselves. Thank you so much for attending. Have a wonderful day, and may the merit of our practice be shared by all beings everywhere, without exception in all directions and realms, the seen and the unseen. May it be a cause and condition for the benefit, welfare, kindness, healing of all beings everywhere.